Tonight I'd like to talk about the experience of the body and this mindfulness of the body and how it's a support, maybe an integral support, integral part of this awakening process that we normally associate with the mind. So what is the role of the body? And um, I really like this question that Sayadaw Utejaniya had a couple years ago at one of his retreats that I was at. And he asked this small group that was meeting with him, he was giving instructions and answering questions, but sometimes he would ask us questions instead of us asking him questions. And he said, is this path of practice or the Buddhist teachings optimistic or pessimistic? So you could just consider how you understand that. And then maybe in light of tonight's talk on the body, embodiment, we could reflect on the question, is this body, and just have a sense of your own experience of body, is this body here to provide comfort, to provide satisfaction, to provide happiness for me? Maybe that's like the optimistic view. Or is this body being embodied, having a body, is it here to torment me, <laughs> punish me, beat me up, put me in place? And that would be the pessimistic view. And, uh, you know, I don't know if some of you might have listened to Saida Utejaniya's talks or read his books or maybe you were fortunate to be at some of his retreats when he teaches here in the West or have gone to Burma. But he can be a little bit playful in the small group discussions, Dharma discussions. And he really wanted everyone to commit, like pessimistic or optimistic. And he kind of knew, we all sort of knew it was a setup, but there was really no way out. <laughs> and then he says, you know, neither, it's realistic. And I think this is true about the body too, right? It doesn't, I mean, especially because, you know, we're being thoughtful now. It doesn't really make sense as much as we'd like the body to be really here for us, a little playground, personal playground to delight. And as they sometimes describe in the Buddhist cosmology, the deva realms, you know, where you have a body that's very ephemeral, very light, and you're sort of born as a full-bloom teenager. And then for eons, you stay as a teenager, you know, with that sort of full bloom of life until your life's about to end. And then very quickly, things fall apart and your life ends. <laughs> but that's that idea that that's, it's like we feel betrayed as we get a little older or we get sick or other things happen to the body. And it feels, well, wait a minute. I thought you were here for me. And it's, we probably know it's not quite right to think the body has it out for us because although it really seems that way, <laughs> when we look, we don't find an evil presence usually. <laughs> if you do, you can talk to Steve tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> so we probably knew it wasn't either of those two, 
So what is our relationship to the body? I think when we um, spend some time with the practice, eventually we come to this understanding that the body is really here as a teacher. And eventually, hopefully, um, a teacher we have a lot of gratitude for. I mean, literally willing to put down our head on the ground like we bow down sometimes to the, the altar or just bow down to the practice. We can bow down to these symbols of our practice or these symbols of the teachings, a teacher, sort of actual teacher, but even the body or other challenges in our life, lives, they're real teachers. And what are they teaching us? They're all teaching us the same thing basically, which is how to be intimate without grasping, how to be intimate, how to engage the life we've been given, this body and mind that is, that's here, how to engage it, how to meet it, how to be right in the middle of it without being pushed around, without falling into habits of grasping, feeling oppressed and suffering. And the body is just the most, in a sense, the most concrete teacher we all have. It's like, I mean, you don't have to go to IMS to meet this teacher. It's always there giving you instructions. You know, if we just know how to frame our relationship to the teacher, it's challenging us in all kinds of ways. The Buddha sometimes talked about the world and the body being part of the world as in terms of the eight worldly winds of gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute, praise and blame. And that also summarizes our relationship to the body. It's like all over the place. Sometimes maybe less than you used to, but sometimes, right, we feel that vigor, that sense of personal, physical power. Sometimes we feel weak and feeble. Sometimes really subtle, vibratory, delightful sensations in the body. Sometimes a real dense, heavy, sloth-like quality in the body. Sometimes we see, we relate to the body as a thing of beauty. Sometimes we relate to it with disgust. So it really has this full range, a lot like the whole world. And the Buddha encouraged us to relate to the world, to all worldly experience, so also the body in terms of the gratification, the drawback or dangers of the body and the escape. And this, like in order to have an honest, wise, kind relationship with the body, we need to understand all three of those things. Like, because if we don't understand the very real gratification we get having a body, then the gratification, the experience of joy, bodily joy, bodily pleasure, the ease of lying in your bed right when you first get there and you know the comfort of receiving a hug from someone you wanna receive a hug from and you know all the simple bodily delights. That's the gratification. If we don't understand what gratification is, We'll make it, generally, we make it more than what it is. 
And if we don't understand the drawbacks of bodily experience, we'll tend not to be appropriately attentive, right? Because if we don't understand the drawbacks, we'll assume it's okay to get attached to the body, like attached to health, attached to strength, or whatever aspect of the body you get attached to, attached to the attractiveness of the body, the youthfulness of the body. And then when that shifts, inevitably, we feel deeply betrayed. Like, what's happened? I'm sure you've had that experience looking in the mirror sometimes, like, oh my God, what's happened? I used to be young, or I used to be this or that, and now. So in many ways through our tradition, there's the, these teachings, these invitations to stay close to the body, to relate to the body as a teacher, to be mindful of the body, to remember, to recognize the present moment reality of the body, which as I said, is always here. I was re- reading recently something Gil Fransdahl wrote. He's a well-known West Coast teacher and um, he was studying with uh, Ajahn Buddhadasa in Thailand, a very well-known Thai meditation master who's been dead for a couple decades now. And uh, evidently one of the things he said while Gil was at the monastery was, don't do anything that takes you out of your body. And although we know, because we've been studying all of us to some degree, we know that the suffering that this path liberates us from is mental suffering. It's the activity of the mind, you know, the mind grasping, the mind clinging, the mind getting attached, identified, taking things personally. But what I'd like to talk about tonight is how this awareness of the body and especially the continuity of the continuity of awareness, stability of awareness with the body, how it really provides the appropriate grounding for this insight into the causes of suffering and release from suffering. And really using some of the teachings of the Buddha, some of the encouragements to be grounded, to be awake to the body. One passage from the Dhammapada, simply talking a lot doesn't maintain the Dhamma, the teachings, the practice. Whoever, although one's heard next to nothing, sees Dhamma through one's body, right? Sees the practice right here in the experience of the body, is not heedless of Dhamma. This person is one who maintains the Dhamma, maintains the practice. So as long as we have gotten, either through our own intuition or through some basic instruction, just stay close to the body. The whole world, you know, everything you need to learn is here. And there's an even more dramatic sort of teaching to this point from the Buddha's um, teachings. And some of you know that, although he spent, you know, the day practicing, even as a fully awake person, he also continued to practice along with the nuns and monks and lay people. And then he'd spend some of the day teaching the lay people, teaching the nuns and monks. 
And then late at night, as the stories go at least, these dewas, these celestial beings would appear and also ask for teachings. And so this is one of those stories where uh, a dewa, uh, Rohitasa, shows up. And uh, he's you know, explaining to the Buddha how he's practiced finding the end of birth and death. Basically, finding uh, a place where he's not being pushed around by conditioned reality. And that he's looked long and hard. I mean, there's a real vivid description how he lived for a hundred years and he used every moment except, you know, those moments for eating and drinking and using the toilet, which they didn't have back then maybe, but you get the point, using all his time to search, to try to get to that place of freedom. And he didn't find it. So he asked the Buddha, you know, about this. He says, is it possible, sir, by traveling to know or see or reach a far end of the world where one does not take birth, age, die, pass away or reappear? And the Buddha responds, I'll tell you, friend, that it is not possible by traveling to know or see or reach a far end of the world where one does not take birth, age, die, pass away or reappear. And then he goes on a little later, the Buddha says, although it's not possible to tra uh, by traveling to know, see, or reach a far end of the world where one does not take birth, age, die, pass away, or reappear. And that's sort of Buddha's code for suffering, getting pushed around by conditioned experience, or these cycles of samsara, cycles of continued suffering, reacting to our conditioned experience in ways that set up more reacting down the road over and over again. So, but at the same time, I will tell you, there's no making an end of suffering and stress without reaching the end of the world. Yet it is just within this fathom long body with its perception and intellect that I declare that there is the world, the origin of the world, the cessation of the world and the path of practice leading to the cessation of the world. He's really talking the world of suffering, the world of samsara, the world of getting pushed around, reacting to taking things personally, that it's here in the experience of the mind and body, in the actual dynamic of the mind and body that we learn what we need to learn. One of the things that has been becoming clearer over the years of practice, and uh, it's really shifted my practice, especially the last 10 or 15 years, is not just in terms of the body, but just more generally the messiness of the world, the limitations of my, the world I live in, which means, you know, being the executive director and guiding teacher at an urban meditation center and all the beauty and challenges that are there and you know developing the place and now we have a country property that we're developing slowly as a retreat property for the community and being a citizen and you know learning about racial injustice and all of the other inequities and global climate change and all of these 
you know, things that are deeply embedded in our culture and of course this life, this mind arises out of this culture. And so I'm really starting to appreciate that instead of thinking about the busyness of my life, the aging of my body, the complications of the culture I live in and the imperfections and the, you know, just the systemic suffering all around us built, you know, it's so deeply the suffering that we see close and further away from us, we just see how inevitably we're wrapped up in it. We can't like, like what I'd conveniently like to do is think it's somebody else's responsibility. But the more I peel back the layers and am learning to be more honest, the more I see how my life is participating in the suffering all around me. And I think this is just sort of what I'm pointing to in terms of our relationship to the body. I'm really beginning to value the mess and the complications because when we hear something like the unconditioned or we hear something like a heart free from grasping, a heart no longer attached, no longer identified, we tend to visualize that or imagine that as somehow like I've removed myself from things that provoke greed, anger, and delusion. And so finally, I'm no longer pushed around by greed, anger, and delusion because I've removed myself from it. Now, that's nice, actually, to be able in moments to remove yourself from things that provoke negative mind states. That's a great thing to do. I mean, I know it's not perfect, but IMS is kind of like that to some degree in moments, right? You're out of the messiness of your life. You're getting fed what to most of us feels like good food. And, uh, you know, it's a pretty, you got nowadays everybody has their own room and they're all pretty nice. So there's not really a, a not nice room anymore at IMS. So it's, it's a little bit like intense Dharma work, but in a nice, comfortable spa-like setting. <laughs> <laughs> which is uh, so so we can get a little bit of that you, naturally and this is the on purpose you know the staff at IMS and the donors the whole reason it's this pleasant is because it allows us to do it makes it easier to do the difficult work that we're doing here so we can get a little bit of respite from what normally pushes us around you know we're not reading the news and we're not having too many duties and responsibilities, cleaning up after the cat or whatever pushes your buttons at home. <laughs> but real liberation, wouldn't it be like when we think about real liberation, that would be the heart that's not getting pushed around right when it's in the middle of the mess, right? That's the kind of liberation I'm interested in. And I'll, I'll definitely take advantage of, at times, secluding my mind from what pushes it around, what irritates it, what triggers reactive, unwholesome patterns. But I'm practicing not to have to remove myself from the messy world in order to feel free, in order to have an unconditioned love or ease or skillful response to the world. So for me, understanding the experience of the body and learning to be 
to really be grateful, not just for the pleasant moments in the body, but all the irritations that we have in the body, upset stomachs, headaches. I might continue this discussion on uh, during my next talk later in the week and a little bit more focused on talking about working with pain. But I'll just briefly mention that some of you know um, Bhikkhu Bodhi, he's a very well-known Buddhist scholar, translator, and teacher, uh, originally from, I think, New York City, but he's been a monk in Sri Lanka for many decades, but now as an older person is a monk in New Jersey, um, still doing a lot of work. He has a great online presence if you want to get some good teachings uh, uh, around the suttas, the discourses of the Buddha. But anyway, he's had a problem with migraines for a long time and in very graphic detail. He talks about how oppressive this experience of the body and difficult and really created problems because to the degree our body is oppressed by poverty or migraines or whatever it's oppressed by, it does make the practice more challenging, but we still have every incentive to practice as well as we can with the conditions of our body as they are, whatever they are. So I'll share some of this probably at our, the next time I speak. So going back to what does the body teach us? It basically teaches us the practice that we've been sharing with you so far this retreat. And it's this dynamic dual of stability of mind and this quality of investigation, this interest. It's, but this interest is very special and, and we use it with the body. It's not so much because a lot of times when we're investigating something, it, it arises from an idea, an expectation of what we're going to see, what we're going to find in that investigation. But a better way to think about the kind of investigation we do in Dharma practice is more uh, from this place of humility, of knowing that we don't know or knowing that we haven't seen everything there is to see, knowing that we haven't understood everything there is to understand. And that sense of humility or even innocence, you know, bringing that quality to the body. So that steadiness, which usually we, we talk about the stability of mind arising from the continuity of awareness with the body, with the breath moving in the body, even with the other sense gates, right? So it could be seeing even, hearing, so these aspects of the body, these five senses of the body, and really seeing it as a teacher to develop the stability of mind, this beauty, beautiful mind that arises with the continuity of awareness. Generally, we train with something that's relatively neutral. So the instructions on the first day which is just the beginning of the practice, but it's a really important place to come back to as often as needed. Just like returning to the body, returning to the breath and the body. 
because for at least most of us, most of the time, it can be a neutral experience, neutral enough, stable enough, concrete enough for the attention to connect with and sustain that presence. And then to cultivate that interest, that humility, instead of connecting with the body as if we know it, right? And this is, this is a real obstacle for us because we think, because I've lived in this body for a long time, I don't actually need to be interested or because I've been breathing for a long time now, I don't really need to be interested. I don't actually have to have that active, reflective knowing of the physicality of the breathing process or just more generally the physicality of standing, of sitting or whatever the body's doing in that moment. So we have to, like we're retraining, re-inspiring the mind because it's only through the mind that we even know there's a body. So mindfulness of the body is this relationship between mind and body. And it's by using the body that we come to understand the mind. We have that, we develop that stability of awareness and we develop that purity of investigation. And then, you know, in a perfect world, we get some real stability. There's a wonderful set of instructions that I heard many years ago from Ajahn Amaro. He's one of the senior monks, Western monks in the Ajahn Chah tradition. And he's now the abbot of Amaravati, a, a well-known monastery in England. And uh, he once said, these very simple instructions, he said, as best you can, let the body settle into the natural ease of the body. And as best you can, let the mind settle into the natural ease of the mind. And then stay alert now to whatever arises to interrupt that ease. And that's kind of where, that's how we learn about the mind. Right? We train the attention, we train the mindfulness to be, to remember that the body's being known, breathing in is being known, breathing out is being known, hardness is being known, lightness is being known, coolness, heat. These different aspects of the body are being known. And with the continuity of that simple presence with body, then the, the stability of the mind really begins to deepen. It studies. And the interesting thing is, as it studies, we call the samadhi, so the greater the samadhi, then the mind, that mind that has samadhi is even more sensitive. The investigation quality really strengthens. So. We start to feel not just the surface of the body, but everything that's more subtle. Now, here's the unfortunate reality is that, you know, we've been living with greed, anger, and delusion for a long time. And one of the things you see very clearly on retreat, like we're sitting, we're feeling pretty relaxed, pretty comfortable. And then our mind goes off into a little drama about maybe something at home and we've got greed in the mind as we're spinning, or we've got aversion in the mind as we're spinning. 
And then eventually the drama pops, you know, we notice, oh, thinking, thinking. And in any case, it falls away. But in that next moment, we land back in the experience of the body. And what do we notice? Something's been laid down on the body, right? The, the spinning of the mind that involved greed or aversion or some unwholesome quality of mind, that is now being reflected on the body. And even though the mind is relatively quick at being able to drop, the body isn't as quick. So what gets laid down in the body might reverberate for a while. And even worse, if I've been spinning with aversion, you know, complaining mind, judging mind, irritated about this, all of those patterns, right, that, right, because it's been laid down, how many times has aversion been laid down on the body? So it's like the body has this pattern of getting tight with aversion. And so when the mind goes back to it, all that ancient body memory of getting tight with aversion gets triggered. Right? Some teachers call this like body, uh, body of fear or the energy body, dharma pain. So it's not even the stress, the bodily stress, the unpleasantness of body that's related to that particular thought, but it, it sort of represents lifetimes maybe of being aversive or lifetimes of being irritated, lifetimes of judging, lifetimes of being, of craving, of wanting things to be different than they are. And that's not very pleasant. And so this is, so that continuity of awareness with the breath, with the walking, with the standing, with the sitting, with the feeling the body sitting, with all the activities through the day as we develop this awareness of body, trust this awareness of body, then we have this greater and greater sensitivity. And it can feel hard to bear, but it's, it should be balanced with the beauty of the samadhi itself. It's this really important balance. Like as more stuff comes online and we're just more sensitive, then it's very easy to want to think about it. But then we don't really have the stability of mind that allows us to remain present, mindfully aware of it, to keep remembering the present moments like this. This is being known. It's just this feeling in the body being known. And then when we're on that level, that experience of the body becomes a beautiful barometer for greed, anger, and delusion, these roots of suffering. What has laid down suffering in the past what's reinforcing laying down suffering in the present moment. Because there's no going beyond suffering without understanding how it comes to be and how it falls away. And I think Steve is gonna talk more about this later in the, the retreat, this particular dynamic. There's this uh, really wonderful passage from one of the um, Buddhist nuns from the time of the Buddha. There's a couple collections of poems written by the early monks and nuns 
um, just sort of in a poetic way describing their freedom. And so this one nun wrote or spoke, how light my body touched by abundant rapture and bliss like a cotton tuft born on the breeze. It seems to be floating my body. Now the reason I wanted to read that is like it's, it's an interesting question because that, that almost goes back to the first question I asked, like is the body here to delight us, to make us happy? Because if that's gonna happen, maybe it is. I mean, that sounds pretty good. But these states, you know, in a way the body is never gonna be anything but nature, right? So, but what makes the body beautiful in a sense is the mind that relates, the mind that knows the body. So the purity of the mind that knows the body can be quite beautiful. And then, of course, because the mind and body reflect each other, when the mind that knows the body is really balanced, really steady, really subtle, then the body reflects back that stability, that subtlety, that beauty. So it's, uh, it's not quite right to say, oh, the body is capable of really delivering happiness, but it certainly part, can be part of those moments of happiness that, because it's, it supports this purification of the mind or the purification of the view in the mind. Steve talked about the wholesome, wholesome attitudes of the mind last night. And so this is something that we can take up as a practice tonight and for the days ahead, you know, in relationship to the body and not in, of course, in a forceful way, but just keeping it in mind. So relating to the body with kindness, relating to the body with renunciation, this contentedness, not like renunciation is not expecting from your body more than it can provide right now. So we're renouncing any expectation. And then the last is harmlessness. Because when we get irritated, when there's discomfort in the body, you know, we can notice how we get a little aggressive with it, a little impatient with it, a little demanding with it. And to just see, like in terms of developing that continuity of awareness and uh, deepening of investigation, that quality of humility and interest, these wholesome attitudes of the mind really support that whole development, right? That interaction between the body and mind that becomes the vehicle for awakening. It's really this relationship between the body and mind or between the mind and the world. And the body is just the most concrete expression of the world we have. There's a passage from the Buddhist teachings. It goes like this. Whoever pervades the great ocean with one's awareness encompasses whatever rivulets flow down into the ocean 
In the same way, whoever develops and pursues mindfulness immersed in the body encompasses whatever skillful qualities are on the side of clear knowing. When one thing is practiced and pursued, the body is calmed, the mind is calmed, thinking and evaluating are stilled, and all qualities on the side of clear knowing go to culmination of their development. Which one thing? Mindfulness immersed in the body. When one thing is practiced and pursued, ignorance is abandoned, clear knowing arises, the conceit I am is abandoned, latent tendencies are uprooted, fetters are abandoned. Which one thing? Mindfulness immersed in the body. Those who do not taste mindfulness of the body do not taste the deathless. Those who taste mindfulness of the body taste the deathless. Those who are heedless of mindfulness of the body are heedless of the deathless. Those who comprehend mindfulness of the body comprehend the deathless. The deathless, if you don't know, is sort of just another word for freedom, nibbana, liberation. It's, it's sort of pointing to the mind no longer in the cycles of suffering, birth and death, the birth of one who suffers, the death of one who suffers, and on and on like that. Whether you think of that in terms of lifetime after lifetime, or just metaphorically, like I'm a suffering being again, you know, and now I'm a suffering being again. And how many times today we were born into moments of being a suffering being? And then it ended, hopefully, right? And then another moment where it was obvious, you know, I'm suffering being here again. Another way the Buddha talked about the benefit of mindfulness immersed in the body, he talks about how Mara finds when there isn't mindfulness of the body, mindfulness immersed in the body, this full, steady presence with the experience of embodiment. He says that Mara, which is the personification of all of the torments of our mind, finds support, finds an opportunity, right? The habit energies of greed, anger, and delusion find lots of opportunities when we're not aware of the body. It's like that, uh, is that phrase from the Christian tradition, um, an idle mind is the devil's playground. I think it actually, it was in the musical, The, the Music Man maybe? I'm trying to, I was trying to remember where I first heard that. The idle mind is the devil's playground, right? So, because you know how it is, it's like uh, you have a good sit, there's some real steadiness, but because our commitment to being aware of the body is just specific to our sitting meditation, then in the transition, it's sort of like checking out what's going on and you know, wondering what's next and uh, should I rush to get to my walking place or... And then that's sort of the devil's playground because as soon as we somehow have justified that it isn't relevant that there's a body here. I mean, imagine, I, I like to think about our relationship to the body in terms of how we usually think of sila, ethical conduct, and the commitment to non-harming and not taking you know, ethical conduct. So in a more personal way, our relationship to the body should have the same kind of integrity you want to have with a dear friend or 
all the people you're in relationship with. And in the same way that if you were in a room together with another person, you wouldn't ignore them. You know, you'd include them. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be polite to sort of go about your way without saying, hey, do you want to do this with me? Or, you know, I'm going to be doing this now. So it's that with the body, it's like, it's sort of like a family member. They always have a right to show up. <laughs> Even if the body's not feeling good, it's like it has a, it has a seat at the table. It always belongs. There's really never a justification for leaving it behind. Now we will sometimes, when the pain is unbearable, we will consciously turn away. But what we'll do is we'll say, honey, I really can't, I don't have the resources to be with you right now. I don't have the steadiness. I need to get refreshed. I need to turn my attention away from the unpleasantness of the body. Maybe I'll pay attention to some other aspect of the body, but I can't really attend to this right now because I'll only relate to it with aversion, fear. So I'm going to skillfully turn the attention away. But that's a kind way of relating. That's a compassionate way of relating. And it's like a way of taking care of the mind, understanding how the mind works. So we want to be aware that when we're not connected, when we somehow have been able to justify being unaware of the body, it's very easy for the mind to get involved with greed, anger, and delusion in some way. And then once we're down that road, once we've taken the first step down that road, the, the very nature of that road is just to continue down that road, right? It has a real slope. It's well greased. So when I have an aversive thought, the thing that makes most sense next is to have another aversive thought. Even if it's like, I shouldn't be having an aversive thought, you idiot. So it, it tends to lead to more of the same. And despite, even despite the fact that we know we're on the road, it's very, it's not so easy to step off it unless the mindfulness is really strong. So we want to, and the image the Buddha uses, he says, in the same way if someone took a really heavy stone and threw it into some really soft clay, it would make an impression. And so that's his image of the danger, like when you lose your mindfulness of body, these tendencies, these not so wholesome tendencies can make a real impression in the mind. And, he's, and then the other image, the counter image, is like when you have stability of awareness with the body, this continuity of awareness with the body, you've made it your friend, you've cultivated this ongoing friendly relationship with it, even when it's unpleasant. Then it's like throwing a ball of yarn at a really solid wood door. It's not gonna make an impression, right? So there still are gonna be the tendencies in my mind to be greedy, to be aversive, to be fearful, to be disconnected. But because of the habit, the wholesome habit of being aware of the body, it's not so easy for those habits to insert themselves, to get water, to be reinforced, right? They stand out because of the stability of awareness with the body, because the mind is relating to the body with these beautiful attitudes of kindness and renunciation and harmlessness. So 
when something else arises, it stands out. And the mind is able then to see these other unwholesome patterns that are arising like aversion because of the stability that that wholesome attitude with the body gives the mind. So remember, we're using the body to stabilize the mind. It's the place where the mind realizes this samadhi. Not the only place, but a very useful common place for practitioners. And remember, you know, the great thing is about the body is that we don't have to define it. We don't have to explain to ourselves what the body is. It's like the, some of you know in the Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse the Buddha gave on mindfulness, he talks about mindfulness in stages. And the first stage of mindfulness is just to be, just in terms of the body, to be aware of the body in and of itself ardent, alert, mindful, tracking, not forgetting. And how I understand this uh, being aware of the body in and of itself is the body not in terms, not mediated by the thoughts or mental images we have of the body, right? So this itself is a kind of liberation. You know, in the course of our practice, we don't have to tell ourselves what the body is. Because what the body is, is this direct experiencing of the body, right? The hardness, the softness, the lightness, the smoothness, the roughness, the warmth, the coolness, the fluidity of the body, the cohesion of the body, the lifting supported uprightness of the body, the movement of the body. There are these elemental things, and even beyond that, beyond those sort of specific characteristics of sensation, the body is characterized like all things are. It's like changing. It's not, you know, have you ever found a static sensation? It sometimes feels that way when we're in a lot of pain, like, no, the Buddha was wrong. This is solid. (laughs) This is not changing. (laughs) But what gives it the appearance of solidity is the idea I don't like this, right? Because the mind is very quick and it's telling itself a story basically, I don't like this pain, this is bad, this hurts. And it, that repetitive story in the mind, that idea in the mind gives the pain the appearance of solidity. But when there's more stability of mind, more of this humility, this quality investigation, then we discover the Buddha in fact was correct, that even really unpleasant sensations have the nature to change. They're dynamic, it's a flow, a movement. And there's no satisfaction in the body itself. This is, goes back to that first question. We don't, the ego doesn't find the ground it really wants in the body. It just finds dissatisfaction and limitations I remember a long time ago in one of the three months retreats, 
Joseph Goldstein was talking about um, how nice it was when he finally moved out of the room upstairs where he lived for I don't know how long, but many, many years. And uh, they built these townhouses not too far from here where Joseph lives now. And, uh, you know, was pleased to have it, although he, he tells other stories about all the choices he had to make in the building, you know, like what color are the walls and what kind of door and, and that's its own torment. But then, then he realized that once you have the place, it's like even if you keep it really neat, it gets dusty. You know, it never, and it's like the body too. It, you never get to that sweet spot, you know? Oh yeah, that's it. <laughs> but how long does it last? It's ephemeral. And this is like, it proves, like even when you really are fortunate, maybe one or two sits during the retreat, where you find that sweet spot and, and everything just comes, sort of lines up and hums and is light and expansive. And like that uh, poem that the Buddhist nun wrote, but it ends, it always ends, it always changes. So we find that the body has the nature that everything has, the nature to change, the nature to not satisfy, and this nature of being nature itself, not self, doesn't belong, this isn't owned by anybody. It's just the natural unfolding of causes and conditions. And the more we understand that, it really liberates the mind from having to define it. And uh, it teaches us something like, the more we realize the body as nature, right? Because it's, the body is something we've held as a personal thing for a long time. But as we learn to be present with it in this steady way, this interested way, and this is generally a very gradual shift where it just slowly dawns on the mind how impersonal it is. Not, remember, impersonal is in no way judging it or putting it down. It's not like, you can't see, but there's a beautiful sunset going on and some of you stood outside tonight. It was such a, and still is a beautiful evening. But there's not, and it's really beautiful, but there's nothing personal about the sunset or about the summer evening or about IMS or about anything. And we learn this in the body it teaches us that just because it's not personal doesn't mean it isn't beautiful. It's just, it's beautiful because it's not personal, because it can't be defined. Because the reason it's seen as, I don't know if you like the word beautiful, but it's liberating because our heart, our mind, it doesn't have to make anything out of it. It's liberated from having to it can just let the body be the body, just like we can let the sunset be the sunset. Nobody in this room, hopefully, is so neurotic as to think, I gotta do something about that sunset. <laughs> like, slow it down. Or capture it. Like, you know, is the office open? I need my phone. I'll videotape it. You know, it's to somehow this idea that I can't just let it express its nature to come and go. And we learn that with the body, especially, you know, as the body ages, or especially as we take our practice into like getting a cold and we learn how to yield to being sick, 
like, oh yeah, this is the nature of the body to get sick sometimes. And getting tired and uh, overeating and feeling the effect of overeating and all of these ordinary experiences we have in the body. And the body just keeps telling us, you know, I'm just nature following causes and conditions, you know, I just, I, and I do it perfectly, I do it ruthlessly. It's like, there's no way to stop me from being nature. You can't govern this thing. You can't make it bend to our, we can't make it bend to our will. It's just gonna be what it is. And so the more that we take it as a teacher, you probably don't wanna do it in public, but in your room, you can practice bowing down to your teacher, the body, and you can resolve in your mind to learn how to relate to it with these three right attitudes of kindness, renunciation, not expecting the body to be more than what it is. It's just nature following its causes and conditions and destined in this lifetime to reflect what the mind is doing. Sometimes my heart breaks open with a lot of compassion, like when my mind is being naughty and worrying or judging or obsessing in ways that aren't so wholesome. And then I notice what it's done to my body. And it's like, it, it literally breaks my heart a little bit like, because it, it, the body's a little bit like that bunny rabbit in the backyard, you know, that our cat is stalking. <laughs> <coughs> and we feel somewhat responsible. And it's like, uh, or, you know, other ways where you end up harming something that you didn't want to harm just because you were a little bit careless. You're cleaning the bathroom and you smash a spider. And you didn't mean to, but you weren't maybe being as attentive as you could be. And then you feel bad because you realize how vulnerable that creature was. They were totally dependent on us being full of care, and we weren't. And the body's the same way. It's totally vulnerable because... Although the body's nature, part of its nature is to reflect the mind because the, the two things are tethered together in this lifetime, right? And so when my mind is involved in unwholesome mental activities, attitudes, then that gets laid down in the body. And when we see it, when wisdom sees it, oh, honey, I don't want to do this again. You know, I want to remember this hurts. This breaks my heart, right? So that's that compassion. In the same way we wouldn't want to garden, you know, in ways that cause harm, we wouldn't want to use pesticides or herbicides that harm other creatures that are around. In the same way, we want to take care of the body. And of course, we want to take care of the whole world, but the body's more pro proximate. So it, it really will trigger that compassion more strongly because when we learn to relate to it as this creature, as this expression of nature, we realize how vulnerable it is. And we can't protect it from everything. You know, there's sort of genetic issues that we can't protect it from, external things we can't protect, protect it from. But there are some things that in a sense we're responsible for, like what the mind is laying down in the body we can responsibly cultivate a wholesome relationship to the body. So just end tonight by sharing uh, uh, just a few of the benefits of uh, mindfulness of the body that 
the Buddha recorded somewhere in the suttas and the discourses. I think there are, I forget now if it's 10 or 11, but I just have a few here. When mindfulness of the body has been repeatedly practiced, developed, cultivated, used as a vehicle, used as a basis, established, consolidated, and well undertaken, these 10 benefits may be expected. What 10? And I'll just list four. One becomes a conqueror of discontent and delight, right? No longer pushed around by either discontent or delight. One becomes a conqueror of fear and dread. One bears cold and heat, hunger and thirst, mosquitoes, wind and sun, and creeping things. Remember, the nuns and monks, I mean, sometimes they had huts back at the time of the Buddha, but often they were just under trees. And they didn't even have, I don't think they had mosquito nets in those days. Um, one endures ill-spoken words and body feelings that are painful, racking, sharp, piercing, disagreeable, distressing, and menacing to life. And then the last one, number 10, one here and now enters upon and abides in the deliverance of the mind. So let's just sit for a few seconds together, resting in the experience of embodiment. And perhaps take a few seconds now as if you're speaking directly to this creature, the body, and just resolving to cultivate these three wholesome attitudes of kindness, letting go, renunciation, and harmlessness or compassion. So we have time for body awareness practice in motion. And then uh, come back for the sit at nine o'clock. Have a good evening to practice everyone. <laughs>